0: Well, friends, perhaps you can relate to this. Sometimes we start something around the house, and it goes from one thing to another thing, right? We fix a leaky toilet, and the next thing we know, we are renovating the entire bathroom, right? Your wife may ask you to patch a little piece in the wall and paint that, and suddenly, you know what happens. We are painting the entire living room or the entire upstairs, Massive projects have been kicked off or initiated, if you will, by the opening of a single can of paint or fixing a leaky toilet. Now take a giant theological leap with me here. Consider the gospel, I mean the gospel in its entirety, not the truncated gospel or the distorted gospel, the actual biblical gospel, what initiates, what kicks off the gospel? What parts are set in motion that have to be there after the gospel is initiated? And those are some of the questions we seek to answer today. So let us get after that. We are going to be in the book of 1 Timothy, as Bob said. We are starting our our mini-series in Advent today. We're taking a break from our series in Romans. And so many of you are visiting with us today, and we're so happy that you are. Uh, What we usually do here is preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expositionally, meaning we expose the meaning of the text. And so my job is to do that, and the Holy Spirit's job is then to apply it to your hearts. And then your job, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is then to walk that out in real life. And so we are pausing and we are looking at some of these texts to give us portraits of Jesus Christ, some different perspectives of Jesus Christ. But rest assured, we will still remain firmly anchored in the biblical text for those. Advent literally means coming or arrival, and as we look expectedly over these next four weeks to not so much the coming of the Christmas season, but really we're looking forward to the coming of the Christ child, and we want to take these next few weeks to prepare our hearts. Already, we're probably feeling the crunch of the Christmas season. Our calendars tend to fill up more. We have to-do lists and presents and gatherings and all of that pressure. Our culture wants to pull us in a million different directions, so we just want to press the pause button. And we want to remember what this real uh, season is all about. We want to consider who Jesus Christ is. And the first passage to help us do that is First Timothy three sixteen. Uh, we have three sets of two sentences each, so that will hopefully give us a good outline that will help us think about Christ in this perspective. Bob read 14 through 16 to give us some context, but I just want to focus on verse 16 this morning. Read it again with me. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Paul tells Timothy that the church, the pillar and buttress of the church, and yes and amen, Bob, to when you prayed that, may Highlands Bible Church be a pillar and a buttress, a support of the truth, we are privileged to confess the mystery of godliness, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospels referred to a mystery a bunch of times in scripture. And specifically in this aspect, it's referring to the Messiah. And you could, you could imagine being someone who knew the Old Testament prophecies. The mystery of the Messiah was things like, who is the Messiah? When will he appear? What will he look like? What will he do? Those things were all mysteries. But that mystery church is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is the long-anticipated Savior. If your text for verse 16 in your Bibles is indented, you might think that Paul's using an Old Testament citation to answer this question that we're looking at today, but he's actually not. This is probably an old creed or a confession similar to what we recited in the Nicene Creed. It could be an old hymn could be something that's been passed down, but they indented it to show that this is something that was familiar to them. Let's look at each one of these sets of two statements here and give us an understanding of the mysterious nature of Jesus the Messiah. What is the portrait of Christ that we see this week? First, our text says that he, Jesus the Messiah, was manifested or revealed in the flesh. This means that Jesus appeared as a human being. This is the heart of what we celebrate at Christmas, the theological doctrine of the incarnation, the taking on of flesh, incarnate, incarnation. Jesus took on human nature, being born to human parents. He lived a human life. John 1.14 famously tells us that the word, Jesus, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2.7 agrees. It says Christ was fully human. Even in his actual death as a sacrifice for sin, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Christ did not give up his deity when he took on humanity. That's a, a very serious theological error. Therefore, he was fully and truly man, and fully and truly God at the same time. If that hurts your brain, good. I don't understand how it works either, but that is the truth that is presented in the gospel. One church historian or theologian put it this way, Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God in one person and will be forever. We read in the Nicene Creed a few moments ago that our Lord Jesus Christ is one substance with the Father. The Chalcedonian Creed states it this way, our Lord Jesus Christ. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one, the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial, consubstantial, well, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, but consubstantial, with us according to manhood. All that to say in 4th century language, 5th century language, right? He's one in the same essence with the Father and one in the same essence with us as human beings. To prove his dual nature, of course, back in our passage in First Timothy, Paul states that Jesus was not only seen as human flesh, but he was also vindicated or justified by the Holy Spirit. How was he vindicated? by the Spirit. He was vindicated clearly at his resurrection. The life of Jesus, all three decades, living, breathing, eating, sleeping, talking, proved he was human, but his resurrection proved that he was God in the flesh. His resurrection vindicated him as God, and the reference to the Spirit indicates that it was actually the Spirit, as Romans 8 tells us, who rose Christ from the dead. Sin was paid for. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of God's holiness. The debt had to be paid. The the offense had to be paid. And it was paid by his son. And he was resurrected as proof that the work was done perfectly, but also as proof that he was God in the flesh. Romans 1, 3 and 4 is perhaps one of the best passages that we can go to to look at the evidence for this elsewhere in scripture. Romans 1.3 says concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, watch this, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see both of that clearly explained in Scripture, that He is both human and God at the same time. And put these pieces together. Christ human seen in the flesh, Christ, the Son of God, vindicated by the Spirit at His resurrection. In other words, we need both of those things. We need both. We need the divinity and we need the humanity. The deity and the humanity. And so so each of those things means something to us. We can't take either one of them away, even if we think that's impossible. We need both of them. And they mean something for us. What do they mean for us? Here's the point, we'll unpack it. Christ's humanity is our representation And His his deity is our salvation. Christ's humanity is our representation and His deity is our salvation. Christ must be both human and God. God in human form his dual nature because in His humanity He represents us. And by His deity He saves us. This is the fatal error of the Jehovah Witnesses. A Jesus who isn't the God, isn't a God. And church, a Jesus who isn't a God can't save anybody. He has to be God. He has to be God or we're still in our sins. Let's look briefly, briefly at these two purposes. Christ, our representative, how does he represent us? And why is that good for us? Hebrews 2 tells us, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, watch this, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, we need a human being to die to pay for other human beings' sins. It can't be any other species. It can't be an Old Testament sacrifice. There has to be a human being to pay for other human beings' sin. That's how he represents us. But no mere human being can pay for our sin. Why not? Because every single human being is sinful. And this person, this sacrifice, this God has to be perfect in order to take away our sin forever. The only sacrifice for sin, therefore, can be one that is both God and man. He has to be man to represent us. He has to be God to be perfect and take away our sin. That's the only way this sacrifice works. That's why Paul calls it the mystery of Jesus Christ, the mystery of godliness. Without it, we would be lost in our sins. And church, let's not not lose sight of the real reason of Christmas. We talked about it a few moments ago at the table. The real reason of Christmas is that Jesus came to be a sacrifice for our sins, to reconcile us back to the Father through faith. So how does that help us on a Tuesday? Well, Christ became human also means that Christ knows what it's like to be a human. He understands. Famously elsewhere in Hebrews, it says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, church, Jesus in his humanity, his, his human side, understands what it's like to be us. He sympathizes us, sympathizes with us rather in our weakness. It's part of the reason that he came, to sympathize with us, in our human weakness, but he also in his divinity has the power, first of all, to save us, but also to work that power in our lives by his glory through the spirit to raise him from the dead. Therefore, that power is still at work in us. Romans 8, famously says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead still dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give you life or give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We have that same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, living in us through faith. So how's that going to help your Tuesday? That's going to empower your Tuesday a lot. We can remember that Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be tempted to sin, though never sinned. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed. He knows what it's like to be hungry. And stressed. We see that in the Garden of Eden. But without the resurrection, we don't have the power to live it. And through the resurrection, we have that same spirit living in us. So, Christ's humanity, we have representation, and through his divinity, we actually have salvation. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead empowers our new lives. Let's keep going and see what else we can see in our portrait of Christ this week. Look at the next couple statements. I'll read it for context. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. These next two statements tell, it that, tell us that he was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. And if we look at each of these again, first, he was seen by angels. Where was he, where was he seen by angels? Well, was kind of a trick question because he's kind of always seen by angels everywhere, probably much like ourselves. He was always seen by angels, and, and we might be quick to think in this Christmas time of year, well, he was seen by angels when he was announced. And and you would be right, of course. Luke chapter two tells us a very, very famous passage that we see acted out with all the kiddos every Christmas season in some way, shape, or form, in churches all over the country. Luke chapter two, verse eight, in the same region where they were There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of other angels, heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see first Jesus being seen by angels at his announcement. Legions and legions of angels. But There's also another place that he was seen by angels, which has a direct tie-in to his proclamation. The proclamation of the gospel throughout the nations. And we see that in the ascension. In Acts chapter 1, famous after the work of Christ was done, we see then this scene where more angels show up. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, a.k.a. angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? One of my favorite quotes in all of Scripture. What are you guys doing? Why are you still looking up there? Get to work. He told you what to do. This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we see, probably more appropriately here, we see Jesus being seen by angels at his ascension. And that has everything to do with the proclamation of the gospels that they were now being empowered to do by the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Christ had lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death on the cross as our representative. He was gloriously resurrected, proving that he was the Son of God. And then as we've seen here in Acts 1, he ascended back to the Father to do what? To sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and rule and reign his kingdom in sovereign authority. He just didn't go back up there and go to his room. He went and he sat at the right hand of God the Father in power and keyword authority. The right hand of God is where Jesus went and where Jesus remains to this day. The power of position and authority. Christ is ruling and reigning right now. Hebrews, again, helps us. Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He says he's going to remain there until it's time for him to return. And when he returns, then he will put all of his enemies, including death, under his feet, and we will live with him forever. Christ's ascension, directly tied to what Paul says in the second, par- the second statement there, them being proclaimed. They now have the Spirit. Now go, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even until the ends of the earth. Then he is proclaimed into or among the nations. Church, if Christ did not ascend back to the father, there is no proclamation. And we see if Christ did not do the work then on the cross, and Christ was not resurrected, he wouldn't be there in order to be ascended. And so all of these things are tied together in these sequential events. And right now, he is sitting down at the right hand of God the father on his throne of power and authority. The very basis for our proclamation is the fact that he's there. That he did the work completely That he is now sitting in authority, in victory, ruling and reigning, and we proclaim it. It's, It's what we just read in Acts chapter 1. Jesus said, wait until I ascend, and then you go. Then you will have the power, and then you go. Jesus ties these two things together in the Great Commission that he said before he ascended to the disciples. He says in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, and Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus himself combines those two things. He says, I have authority. I am about to go back to the Father. And now your job is to proclaim my name, my work among the nations. Authority and proclamation tied together. Because the work of Jesus was complete, we know it is true. Jesus' authority is then the basis for our proclamation. And so here's another thing we can pick off about a portrait of Christ. Christ's authority empowers our commission. Christ's authority empowers our commission. All the pieces of the work that Jesus came to do are mandatory. We must have them. They aren't optional. We can't say, Well, I don't believe in the resurrection, because that doesn't seem very scientifically possible. I don't believe he. he went ascended back to the Father. What was that? Was there a helicopter involved? Was he teleporting? I don't understand. It sounds weird. Did Jesus really die on the cross for our sins? You need all you can't take any of those things out. You need them all. This perfect, a sinless life, his sacrificial death. His vindicating resurrection, His glorious ascension, witnessed by angels and men. and Now He rules and reigns in authority. Christ's authority that was appointed to Him after all of those parts of His work were done completely. That is then what empowers our commission that He gives us to go and make disciples because of who Christ is and what he did. Therefore, we can proclaim him among the nations. And we don't proclaim a partial gospel. We don't proclaim a powerless, weak gospel. We proclaim a glorious gospel of authority of our King Jesus. Not the gospel of working your way to God's favor like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Not the gospel of emotionalism, where we have an emotional experience and live with God in our service, in our hearts, looking for the next emotional fix. Not a gospel of prosperity, seeking power and the things that God can do for us. Not the gospel of the Jehovah Witnesses, certainly a false gospel, proclaiming a powerless human Jesus who can save no one. Know all of the parts of Jesus and his work and his gospel, culminating in his ascension, seen by angels, where he now sits in authority as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, come together to empower our commission. And, church, we proclaim a risen and ruling Savior. That's what we proclaim. And so, how does that help us on a Tuesday? Well, first, the gospel is power, and second, We actually do have a king that is actually sovereign and actually ruling over everything right now. The gospel's power. We're not proclaiming a weak gospel of self-improvement. We're not proclaiming a gospel where it's like, just trust Jesus for a more okayer life. We're not proclaiming just the gospel of just ask him into your heart and then you can go to heaven. Although maybe some of those things are true, but not merely those things are true. We proclaim a gospel that is powerful. Because he rose from the dead, it's not just us trying to be nice people. It's being new people. It's walking out of the newness of our hearts. We are are living a new life that God has given us because he has the authority to do so. And that's what we proclaim. We don't proclaim self-help. We proclaim transformation. And we think, can Christ forgive my sin? You don't know what I've done. Yes, he can. He has the power and the authority to do so. You don't know who I used to be. Well, it doesn't matter because Christ is going to make you a new person and he has the power and the authority to do so and that's what we proclaim. Can Christ continue to transform me, my marriage, my parenting? Can he give me victory over sin? Can he empower me to live a transformed life? Yes, yes, and yes. King Jesus says so from his royal throne where he sits in authority. But also church This idea of Christ ruling and reigning from that throne is one that should bring us great comfort in 2023 America, should it not? We have a king who is sitting, ruling and reigning on his throne right now. I know what you're thinking. I know, okay, Pastor Mike, you must not have read what's happening in the world in the clown world times today because it's pretty bad out there. I'm not sure you saw. It doesn't certainly look like Jesus is ruling and reigning anything. It sounds like the, or looks like the monkeys are running the circus sometimes. It doesn't seem like Jesus is ruling and reigning. What I say to that is there will always be rebel subjects in his kingdom until he returns. That, that Christ has his kingdom. He is sitting on his throne right now. But there are rebel subjects in his kingdom that are raging against him and his authority. Are they not? And we see that all over the place. And they have to be there. Why do they have to be there? Well, some of us used to be rebel subjects, didn't we? Some of us used to rage against God. Some of us used to live lives with us on the throne and not Jesus on the throne. And what did he do? Such were some of you. He transformed us. Why? Because he's a powerful, ruling, reigning king who's resurrected. And that's what he does. We were all once enemies of God. We were all once rebel subjects. And he transformed us. And so, yes, our optimism, our confidence is mixed with the reality of sin. The reality that, yes, there are rebel subjects, but the hope is, the clear and present hope is, that one day there will not be one day he will return. And one day there will not be any more rebel subjects. There will just be worship. There will not be any sin. There will not be any rebellion against his authority. He will, he will one day rule and reign perfectly in his, his sinless eternal kingdom. And we remember that such were some of us. We used to be those rebel subjects. But his mercy transformed us through faith. From an enemy of the child of God, uh, now to a child of God, seated at his table. Some of those who are now waging war against King Jesus will someday, through the power of this gospel that we proclaim, bow the knee to him and repent and trust him as Savior and Lord. And we have to believe that because it's really, really difficult when we look outside and we say, "Mm, those people are never gonna come to faith. Some of them are, church, and we need to believe it and we need to be ready for it. The rebel subjects, then, through the authority of Jesus Christ. Christ's authority empowers our commission. Let's see where Paul goes next to our next two statements. Look at 1 Timothy 3.16 again. I'll read the whole thing. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Focus with me on the last aspect of our portrait of Christ this morning believed on in the world and taken up into glory first believed on in the world i mean this is what we think of when we think of faith john 3:16 right famously tells us that god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life this can refer of course to nothing but faith alone we are saved through grace alone through faith alone in who jesus christ is he's believed on in the world Romans 3 tells us we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, watch this, to be received by faith. We need to believe on him. This is the gospel that must be believed if you are visiting with us this Christmas season, if you have never thought about this before, if you're starting to put the pieces together about who Jesus is and what he did, why it matters, you have to respond. You actually have to believe the gospel. And so if you do not believe the gospel, you are not saved so you need to actually turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ. And if you allow me a brief moment of secular humanism, what better gift can you give yourselves this Christmas? <laughs> Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Give yourself, through the power of the Spirit, the gift of a new life. But, if you have that glorious hope, and eternity awaits us, and that's the second part of our passage. <clears throat> One day... He says, You will be taken up into glory with Jesus. Second Thessalonians tells us when he comes on that day to be glorified, there's our word, in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony is to you who has believed. One day, the final phase, we will be glorified. We will be made perfect. And this and thus, then, we will be with Jesus forever in his kingdom. As the old hymn proclaims well, O Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. Our faith, what we believed, we will see with our own eyes. We will see Jesus himself. We will see what the end of our faith is, our reward, to be taken up into glory forever. So the third portrait of Christ from First Timothy this morning, Christ is the object of, and reward of our faith Christ is the object and reward of our faith I can remember going to church and and thinking about Christ returning and not being excited about that as a kid right like I that's not good news to me pastor guy I want to live a life you know maybe I want to even get married someday and have kids or if you're single sometimes you think that's not really good news to me I got plans. I want a house. I want a spouse. I want all these things. If Jesus comes back, then I don't get all those things. We have to remember, when Jesus comes back, it is way more than anything this world could possibly give us with the gifts that we have. And all those things are good things. And yes and amen, we should pursue them. Jesus is better than anything this life can give us. And this life can give us some pretty great things. But an eternity with Jesus will be way more gloriously fulfilling than anything you can dream up here on earth. The goal of Eternity Church is to be with Christ. He's the object of our faith. We, we, we get to see Christ. We get to be with Christ. And sometimes in our American view of heaven, we, we, we say, like, well, heaven's going to consist of all these wonderful things. Well, it might, and it will, but the idea is Christ is there. John Piper nails this in a famous quote. He says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food that you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, and the natural beauties you ever saw, and the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The reality is all those other things do not compare to Christ. And so why does a Christian want to go to heaven? Not so much for all those other things. Because Christ is there. We want to be with Christ. Christ is the object and the reward of our faith. And this sentiment hits differently the older you get. Right? The older you get, you're kind of like, I could... I'm, I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. And Jesus comes on Tuesday, that's a good thing, right? I, I'm all right with that. And maybe you don't even have to be that old to think that way. But it's funny the way that as the years click by, the idea of being with Jesus gets sweeter and sweeter. Melanie and I just attended a funeral service last week for a dear sister in the Lord that we really didn't know all that well, but honored by her siblings her children, her 32 grandchildren, and her countless other great-grandchildren, the overwhelming majority of them walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I want to go out. That's how we all should want to go out. Full of life, full of years. Yes, Lord, I'm done. Let's go. I want you. But the hard part is, maybe if that comes sooner, maybe if we don't have that life, Maybe we are cut short in that life. Is Jesus enough? The fact that we will see the object and reward of our faith, church, I'll answer for you, is enough. It has to be enough because it's Jesus. Philippians tells us that he will sustain us. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now imagine that Christ provided all this for us, our representation, our salvation, our commission, our faith, our reward. How? By first coming to earth as a baby. If you're astute, which you guys are, of course, you'll see that the whole gospel is in 1 Timothy 3.16. All of the parts of the gospel are here. The incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, the proclamation of the gospel, faith, Belief in the gospel. And one day, the return of Jesus Christ being taken up in glory with him forever. All of these parts, they're all steps in the gospel. And what kicks it all off? What initiates it all? The coming of Jesus Christ. So we put all the pieces together this morning. Here's the big idea. Christ's coming initiates the gospel. Christ's coming initiates the gospel. We are constantly in danger of truncating the gospel. And passages like 1 Timothy 3.16 won't let us do that. We don't see in 1 Timothy 3.16, if you believe and say the sinner's prayer in your heart, you will go to heaven and see mommy and daddy. That's an American version of the gospel. Not that that's not true. But look at the parts of the gospel that are here. The gospel is not merely believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. The gospel is not merely believe in Jesus so you can be forgiven of all the bad things that you've ever done and clear your conscience. Worse yet, we can distort the gospel. The gospel is not believe in Jesus so that you can have a happy life, a prosperous life, so your marriage will be good or your kids will be perfect. Even though those things may be improved, that's not the sum total of the gospel. The gospel is a complete story of God's redemption centered on Jesus, and then it all begins with Jesus coming to earth. It centers on who this Jesus actually is according to the word of God. His humanity is our representation. His deity is our salvation. He must be and he has to be both, human and God. Christ's authority empowers our commission to go And bring glory to God through the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus Christ. And Christ is the object and and reward of our faith. We center our lives on Jesus and we look forward to an eternity centered around Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth that is far better than anything this world can offer. Why? Because Jesus is there. And it all starts how? Christmas. It all starts with Advent. It all starts with what we celebrate here. The coming of Jesus initiates the gospel. An unstoppable chain of events designed to bring glory to God. And we say with the song, He who is mighty has absolutely done a great thing in the portrait of Christ that we see in 1 Timothy 3.16. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you for the love that you have given us in Christ. As we start this Christmas season, Lord, help us. Show us the depth of the coming of Jesus Christ. As we start this Advent season, Lord, help us to anticipate the coming of Jesus for what he has done in giving us the gospel. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.